Welcome to The Winsome Creationist, where we explore God's world using a model-building approach, interact with a gracious tone, and take a firm stand on the literal truth of creation found in God's Word. Join host Steve Schramm and occasional guest as they explore the mysteries and majesties from creation to the flood, Babel to the cross, and everywhere in between. And now, here's your host. One of the biggest problems facing young earth creationism today and for the past few decades as we begin to think more about the science is the issue of the distant starlight problem. And there have been a lot of different solutions offered by many different people, um, some of which have held favor for quite some time until someone came along and said, no, that's not the right way to do it. And this is a really, really big discussion. And I have with me my new friend, uh, Phil, Dr. Phil Dennis, and he is going to help us sort of think through this issue a little bit. We're actually going to be putting a series together talking about some of the different solutions to the distant starlight problem, um, including one of his own which we'll get to in a few uh, videos. So, Phil, thanks so much for joining us. I'm, I'm really excited about this. Yeah, hi, Steve. Glad to be here. Excellent. Yeah, this is great. So, um, for those of you not familiar with um, Phil's work, he's published quite a bit in the, uh, in the ICC and just other papers and, and writes some blogs. So, he's a retired physicist, graduated from the Department of Physics and Astronomy in the University of Missouri, and that's uh, really exciting. He's done a lot of work on so many different things. Um, he works in general relativity and, and gravitation, does work in cosmology, quantum field theory, and philosophy of science. The bottom line is Dr. Dennis is a lot smarter than me, and so I'm very hopeful that throughout this interview, um, we will be able to present the information we're going to talk through in a very uh, yeah presentable way that you can understand. Now, I understand that you did a little bit of work on the Hubble telescope, which is actually pretty cool. Could you tell us a little bit about how that went and what you did? Yes, I was uh, working on the uh, design and algorithm team, and uh, I did a lot of work in the uh, the ground station software, which is uh, the software that schedules observations or you know for science experiments and. Uh, the algorithms for how to aim the uh, telescope and schedule it in an efficient manner to, you know, the telescope has to slew its uh, field of view from one point to another point. It has to calculate where's the sun, where's the moon, and uh, where we're actually where the earth is too, and point and, and schedule a time where you get a nice clear uh, field of view for the object of interest. So that wow. involved, of course, <laughs> a, a lot of, uh, you know, uh, dynamic calculations to attain the telescope. Yeah, that's really awesome. Um, so what we want to talk about, we, we're actually probably going to talk about um, uh, not necessarily telescopes, but satellites. And we're going to we're going to cover a lot of things in this interview. But the first thing that we want to sort of um, uh, begin with is starting to look at the anisotropic synchrony convention or the ASC. And so this is a model that was um, proposed recently by Jason Lyle, but it sort of has a history that goes um, beyond that, which we're going to get into. And um, I think it's, it's really important that we do this. And maybe we should say up front, this is not, uh, this is science, right? What, what we're doing here is science. Um, we are not aiming to attack any particular person or individual. 
Um, and uh, everybody has ideas, but the ASC is one of those ideas that has gained a lot of ground and a lot of traction in the creationist community over the last few years. And, um, you know, we think there may be some problems with it that are uh, important for us to talk through. And so that's what we wanted to do kind of this first time around and just uh, explore uh, this model from a, um, you know, from a really careful standpoint, scientific standpoint, and see if it holds up. So, uh, Phil, should I go ahead and start uh, maybe sharing one of your slides here to get started talking about this? Sure, Steve. It sounds good. Okay. All right. Very good. I love this. You say time is not a place. What a, what a good, succinct way to put it. Yes, exactly. Uh, that's one of the uh, foundational uh, uh, ideas that's involved in the, in the ASC is that uh, it's this eternalist notion that uh, time and was well, in it's called space time. We hear that every right. day when we're listening to popular expositions of, of relativity theory. They talk about uh, space time, and uh, that's based upon a philosophy that the universe is a block. And yeah, uh, so time time is not a place that uh, is sitting there, and we'll get into more detail on that a little bit later. When yes. we talk about yep. eternalism and uh, presentism. Absolutely. Yeah, that should be good. All right. So take us through a little bit of the history of this. Okay. The genesis of ASC is, uh, goes back to a philosopher who's Hans Reichenbach. And uh, Lyle has adopted that, uh, that philosophical notion. Uh, Hans Reichenbach had a model which he called the Epsilon model, and it was a convention for simultaneity. And uh, as I said on the first slide, time is not a place. The, uh, the Eternalist uh, has the notion that, that there really is no such thing as simultaneity. In other words, there's no such thing as events that occur at the same time. You know, that's a convention. Uh, so... So there's some background. It's interesting that Reichenbach was a logical positivist. And uh, as I said, he held to a conventionalist view of relativity. And uh, the other interesting thing was this was formulated, I believe, in the 1920s. And uh, at that time, uh, there wasn't even a uh, actual atomic clock. You know, now they're commonplace. You know, we're <laughs> putting them in satellites, right? There's, uh, as a matter of fact, they're... Yeah, uh, planning to send some uh, atomic clocks up into uh, in our satellites. Uh, so that was it was limited technology. So when they were considering things like how do I measure the one way speed of light, they were uh, constricted by their technology, and uh, so they thought that you couldn't synchronize two clocks. So uh, you had to use a single clock. And with a single clock, any measurement would be a two-way. In other words, you'd have to send a signal out to a distant a location at a distance R, wait for it to reflect back and get back to where you sent the wire. But that's a round trip, you know, forward and back. Right. So uh, Reichenbach basically said, uh, you don't know when it reflects. Now, uh, some of the things when you read the literature of ASC, you'll see that uh, they keep... Uh, going on the notion that you need a single clock stipulated for a uh, one-way speed of light. 
because that way you didn't have to worry about synchronization, right? If I have two separated clocks, you know, how do I know that they're still synchronized? Right. Uh, I claim, I claim clock synchronization is a red herring, but it's still claimed to be a problem to this very day. Uh, yeah. The, the, the other point I'm making here is that actually if one adheres to special relativity, which ironically, uh, Reichenbach and Lyle do ascribe to, then synchronization of moving clocks really is not an issue because there's a, t there's a formula for time dilation for how slow a, cl a clock will uh, tick when it's in motion relative to another, to another observer. So if you can calculate yeah. your velocity and you can, you can determine how much time you're losing and correct for that. What is complicated to debate is that, uh, the adherents of ASC, they basically adopt all the dated facets of Reichenbach's uh, philosophy of space-time and the operational limitations, you know, namely that you can't synchronize clocks, that you cannot measure right. a one-way speed of light. So once you've adopted that, you can say, well, let's, there is no such thing as a physical quantity that is the one-way speed of light. Yeah, right, right. So it, the, So sort of the whole, if I were to kind of summarize that, sort of the whole crux of the matter is that there was limited technology and outdated ideas surrounding like how we measure that and the synchronization and all of the stuff that goes into it. And so we're sort of relying on old technology, old science, if you will, when we start using this model. Correct. Mm. Yeah. Right. Well, um, that's not, you know, it's one of those interesting things, right? Because science moves at a very fast pace. And so, yeah, we have, you know, some things that we learn from the past and we take those with us into the future. But, it, you know, it, it's really important when we're going to be crafting models and instructing models for the, for the future. I mean, as creationists, we're really trying to understand how God's world really works. And we should be using the best available information at any given time, you know, in order to get there. And so I think that's going to be an important feature as we move forward here. Yes, indeed. Uh it turns out that uh, these notions that you can't measure the uh, one-way speed of light have held out even to this day. I think if you go to Wikipedia, there's a basically a dogmatic statement that you can in, in one of their uh, articles, which I find interesting. Wow. We'll get wow. to that later when we talk about some of the empirical uh, uh, experiments or empirical facts, like, you know, the Caltech... Uh, femtosecond camera. We'll get into that. Yeah, that's going to be really fascinating. Very good. All right. So what is, uh, what do we have next? Okay. This is, as I mentioned, uh, the, uh, ASC depends upon this idea that you really can't measure a one-way speed of light. So this, this, uh, slide summarizes that on the right, we have a little diagram where we have a person uh, at an origin and he emits a light at time T1. Let me use my mouse to illustrate that. They send out a light ray, it reflects at a place R. Then it comes back to the uh, person who's, this is his timeline. This is, this is him moving through time. And he receives it at T2. And Reichenbach basically had the idea that, uh, he said, we're ignorant of what, well, th this is my take on this. He didn't actually, <laughs> this is not an actual quote. Uh, since we're ignorant of when the light arrives at the reflector, we can choose to make it any time we like. 
right? So that's what this T prime mm. is. So uh, clearly this T prime has to be between T1 and T2 because you, you cannot have reflected before you sent it, right? It has to right. reflect after and it cannot have reflected uh, after, yeah, after you've received it, right? So it has to, yeah, it has to reflect after you've sent it and before you receive it, right? So sometimes. Correct. And he, he just did this little straightforward, what's called linear interpolation. And this is that epsilon I keep referring to probably and didn't define it. So this yes. is, this is a time. Okay. So the bottom line of ASC, as I said, is impossible to measure the one-way speed of light, but that's false because you know, it's been done. And as we'll see later, there are plenty of, uh, empirical facts that rely upon knowing the one-way speed of light. So. This is not. Yeah. And that, and that, that I think people, yeah, definitely stick around because that's going to be a very, very fascinating. Just some of the things that we experience sort of in everyday life that you wouldn't necessarily think of, uh, that, that honestly seem to refute the ASC right out of hand. So that's, I think going to be very, very fascinating. Right. Um, so as we start sort of looking at this really this discussion is going to fall under three main sort of headings, the theological and philosophical sort of implications of accepting this, then sort of the math and physics angle of it, which I admit is a little more difficult for me to grasp, but I know uh, a lot of you uh, smart cookies out there will definitely want to follow along for that section. Um, and then back to the experimental verification, which is which is what we're going to talk about and some of the ways that we experience in everyday life. So I think the first thing that we'd like to kind of get into is the theological and, and philosophical problems that you run into if you accept this idea, right? Correct. Before we move on to the next slide, I'd like to mention this one point here. Uh, yeah. That's, we don't know. Uh, he basically saying there really isn't a time or it's eternalist. In other words, I can choose any one of these times, right? It's, it's right. really kind of like mm -hmm. a mental construct, which, so this does get us into the theological, philosophical issues. Right off the bat, right? Because he's right. there is no, right here, there is no time event at the origin, which is when the reflection occurred. The time reflection is not an objective. It, right. Reality. Yeah. You're, right. You're, you're sort of just picking it. <laughs> yeah. It's a non observable. Yeah. To, at the time that was done, there was no way to observe when it reflected, is his point, right? Because right. you can't synchronize the clock, so you don't know when it reflected. So let's, right. yeah, let's, right. Okay. So, uh, yeah, let's, here's a summary of the theological philosophical failures of ASC. Uh, the first thing is the log illogical fail failure that ASC presupposes an actually existent onto what I call an ontological Minkowski space. Now, what's the uh, significance of that? Uh, Minkowski space is the geometric model of special relativity and Reichenbach adhered to it. And so does Lyle. And so it's necessarily SE presupposes special relativity in Minkowski space, which is in fact isotropic. Then it acts as if it isn't. And this is a logical inconsistency. And we'll talk about that a little bit more later. The other thing yeah. is, is, as I mentioned, oh yeah. Do you have a comment there? Well, 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 I get a comment slash question. Um, I mean, his, his, the, the, the name of the model is the anisotropic synchrony convention and yet the Minkowski space that it presupposes is isotropic. So I think that's, I mean, that's the point you made, but I'm just 
kind of trying to make it really clear. Like that seems really strange. Yeah, it is strange. It, it turns out, and we'll hopefully be able to make this clear as we go on, is what they call speed is really not a speed. So uh, when they mm. when they claim they're changing the speed of light, uh, they're really not because at rock bottom, Minkowski space has a nice tropic speed of light. So you can't. Yeah. Uh, you can, know, you can you define the term isotropic? Isotropic means it's the same in every direction that you look. Okay. Gotcha. So, okay. yeah. All right. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, Very good. there's no angular or directional, uh, dependencies or, or facts. Okay. So in other words, that the speed of light coming in towards us is the same as the speed of light going out, which gets back to the one way speed of light experiment. Right. Right. So yeah. they say, they, they basically say you, you can only measure an average. Right. So, uh, Mm -hmm. And that's right. how you can supposedly by deciding when it reflected, you can get a different uh, value. Right. But, but uh, as we'll see, that's experimentally, that doesn't really work. <laughs> correct. Uh, and so, again, it's eternalist. And he, actually, uh, Jason Lyle gives lip service to time travel in his book, The uh, Physics of Einstein. Because see, time travel to the past requires the past to still be there. And this is the lead in was, I said, time is not a place. Time is the past is not a place that you can sit there and sitting there and you can visit. Okay. Right now, I have a couple of thoughts or questions on this. So, um, so at the outset, let's maybe um, define what we mean by presentism versus versus e eternalism. And, and let me let me just give sort of my my lay instructions first, and then you can sort of correct me. Okay, my, okay. my understanding of the issue is that in in presentism. Temporal becoming is real. That is, ten, the, 10 minutes ago, whatever that is, no longer exists. It's, 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 it's not in the past, so to speak. It's, it's gone, right? We are in sort of now and we are moving through time. That's uh, presentism. And it sort of has this idea of a, of a three plus one going on. We are a three-dimensional being and we are persisting through time. But then the eternalist construct is like we're a 4D being sort of extended in space. And I know we're going to talk about that a little bit more, but I think just as we're setting up the conversation, um, understanding the difference between a presentist and, and an eternalist, I think is going to be, is going to be important. And, and so what you're saying here is that Jason, um, you, in, in his lip service to time travel, because time travel could only exist in a world where space-time was a, was a reality. Correct. Space-time, he is an eternalist. Right. Right. Yeah. And he, he claims that special relativity actually says that you could, uh, based on the Lorentz transformation, uh, would make time, suggest that time travel is possible. But yeah, it's not the Lorentz transformation that suggests that. It's the mathematical model, as you said, that uh, the universe is a block. Uh, past events still exist, they're real. Future events, are already there if you can actually use that terminology and, <laughs> right yeah so yeah, yeah. so okay. yeah so it's your 4d being everything's four-dimensional and it has both spatial and a time dimension you're extended in both space and time right now well, I, I have a question about this um this actually came up in a conversation with with a friend recently um it, number one, is it a true statement that most, I don't even know what you would say, physicists, cosmologists, whomever, um, is it fair to say that most of them 
are eternalist in nature. I, I thought I heard that somewhere that most of them subscribe to a, a an idea of eternalism rather than presentism. I think it might have been in Dr. William Lane Craig's work on the Kalam cosmological argument that I came across that little tidbit. I'm not sure what your perception of that is. And then a second, like sort of adjoining question to that would be, is there is there any evidential reason to be one over the other? Or is that is your philosophy of that, um, to use the language of ASC, a choice? Yeah, I don't, I, it's hard to say whether there's direct evidential other than uh, people point out things like the uh, uh, in, entropy increase, right? Things like that. So, uh, gotcha. you know, the, the direction of time. And unfortunately, it's the way of relativity is taught is it goes to Minkowski space and that kind of inculcates this view of this four-dimensionalism. But uh, there's plenty of physicists that uh, realize that uh, uh, relativity doesn't imply uh, one or the other. It's neutral. Okay. So, uh, yeah, gotcha. yeah, whether the most physicists adhere to uh, uh, eternalism, it's not, that's not clear to me. As a matter of fact, uh, when you listen to a lot of the expositions of, say, the Big Bang, they talk as if, you know, the time's flowing, right? You know, I mean, they say the universe right. is 13.8 billion years old. Well, in eternalism, uh, the universe itself really has no age as a whole, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. And they, right. This, it's, exactly. this gets back to the uh, notion that time is time a place, in which case you're just measuring time distances, so to speak. Right? In other words, they're basically just saying the distance to the Big Bang is 13.8 billion years from the point where we are now. But, you know, they use language like now and so on and so forth anyway. So it, yeah, it's really a philosophical. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, it's philosophical conundrum. Yeah, it's just philosophical mess, I guess is the best way to say it. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, cool. Well, let's talk about it um, from sort of that theological, philosophical angle next. Okay, all right. So here's a summary of what I call Lyle's eternalist stance. And it really is unfortunate that he uh, actually talks about uh, time travel. Uh, and uh, here's a quote, which I guess I don't need to read. We can leave it up there. Uh, actually, this yeah, is I'll leave it up there on, for the prior, for the, on the prior slide. He says, well, as we saw in the previous chapter, the, in the emphasis I've added, the theory of relativity allows for the possibility of traveling backward in time. Well, it doesn't. Right. You have <laughs> to assume, yeah, it, mm. it's just a mathematical theory, right? And mathematics does not dictate uh, metaphysics. Okay. So yeah. me as a president, so I can sit there and talk about space time as an abstraction and do the mathematics. You know, so uh, it's just a, basically a graph, uh, space time, but in order for time travel to be the, like say the past still has to be there. And he claims that, uh, time travel is provable from the Lawrence transformation, but it's, is not provable from that. So, so. Could, could you maybe stop there and, um, uh, the Lorentz transformation is something we've talked about it a couple of times. I feel like it might come up again. Is there a, a somewhat simple way of explaining this? Um, it, it's basically the, the, well, I'm not even going to try. Do you have sort of a somewhat way, a simple way of explaining what the Lorentz transformation essentially is, what he's trying to say there? Yeah, that's without a graph, I guess that might be a little bit difficult. And so I apologize for uh, just yeah. describing it. Now, 
I mean, his whole book is a book on special relativity. I mean, it's called the, the physics of Einstein. So he goes through and derives the Lorentz transformation and, uh, you know, so this is our, this is in chapter 10. So he's referring back to prior chapters, but basically the Lorentz transformation is the mathematical statement that, uh, how you transform from one inertial frame, an observer that's moving at constant speed relative to another observer. And, uh, yeah. that's where you get the idea of time dilation and, uh, link contraction and so on and so forth. So basically the yeah. Lorentz transformation says how to describe how to change one observer's description of an event, which is specified by a time tag and a location, say X, Y, Z, and another observer who's going to tag it with different times in di a different location. Now, of course, it's mm -hmm. non-problematic that if, if I'm measuring distance from me, that it's going to be different for you. I mean, that's relativi relativity principle. The, uh, right. the new thing that uh, special relativity introduced was the notion that your clock time was not absolute. Okay, so moving clocks are effective. And uh, that's what the Lorentz transformation does. And, yeah, yeah, uh, that makes sense. And so he's trying to say that that alone is able to prove that time travel is possible, but you're saying, no, it, it relies on that eternalist space-time paradigm. Yes. I should have included a slide, which I have in other briefings, basically what the, uh, Lorentz transformation shows that for one observer, uh, if you have two, uh, remote events that are not temporally related to each other, say a and B for one observer, a occurs before B and for another observer, uh, B occurs before A, so they get reversed. In one case, A before B, in the other case, B before A. So that kind of gives right. you some notion that, oh, I've reversed time. Yeah. Okay, right. so if I can reverse time, you know, then, uh, you know, that, that might yeah, say, say that uh, I can do time travel. But as I mentioned, the A and the B are not temporally related. So in order to get to there, you got to travel faster than the speed of light to sort of somehow make them temporally related. Right. right. And that's my yeah. next note. He says, although the notion that faster than speed of light is in special relativity is a, bio a violation of the basic geometry of special relativity. You've got to, you got, got to convert time to space, space to time. So that, that's a, mm -hmm. a straight, that's a direct violation of the mathematics. So. Right. Any, that's any, fascinating. Yeah. Yes. 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 And so, as you say in that final slide there, the time, the time is a place. That's the core idea of eternalism. This idea that the time is a place, but you're saying time is not a place. Right. Yeah, exactly. As you said, the past, the past is gone. The future is not yet. And we're in the, in a now. Okay. So let's see if we can go to the, uh, corollaries. Yeah. I, I could go in great depth on these and, and show a lot of graphics, but, uh, oh. I just want to give the summary here. The first is we've yes. already mentioned time travel is possible. The past, present, and future eternally exist in a timeless eternity. So the past is just there waiting for time travelers to arrive. We've already talked about for those of us who love science fiction, but oh, uh, yeah. that's about yeah. all it is. <laughs> you know. Yeah. My trend now is to not call it science fiction if there's time travel in, involved. I call it time uh, science uh, fantasy. Right. Science fantasy. It's, it's like yeah. Pinocchio or whatever, right? That's what it's it, that sort of thing. So yeah. Nerd yeah. tale, fairy tales. Uh, we've already talked about there's no such thing as now, right? For example, if uh, 
if it, two events A and B can be reversed in time, well, they, they're not in the same now, right? Right. So, yeah. And, uh, right. and that goes back to Reichenbach saying, well, I can just choose any time between T1 and T2 for when it reflected. There, there is no such time. So there's no <laughs> such thing as simultaneous, right? It's just a convention. This gets back to conventionalism. It turns out that distance is not a physical quantity because, uh, between, uh, uh, if, if I, I, I can define any distance, uh, based upon when I consider them to be simultaneous. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. And, yeah. and then it, it, so if distance is not a physical quantity and basically time basically is a physical quantity, you can sit there and say one way speeds are not physical quantity, right? Because speed is supposed to be physical distance divided by elapsed time. Well, right. if neither of those are, are true, then I can supposedly make speeds anything I want, which is what ASC does. Right. Like it assumes movement, but there's no movement actually happening. It's kind of strange. Yeah. Well, th there's movement, but it's not through a defined distance. Well, right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm with you. Yep. Yeah. All right. And uh, it actually does go through time, but uh, it depends upon who you are, I guess, and define how you're going to sync your clocks. Right. So, uh, Mm -hmm. So, so again, uh, this was a famous Einstein quote where he said, time is just an illusion. Nothing actually happened. You think things are happening, but they're really not happening. It, it, the whole universe right. is one big static block. And we've already exactly. mentioned the final point there. There are no 3d objects persisting through time. They're only eternal 4d space-time objects and you have no objective shape. Either, okay. Because right. yeah. depending upon when you, when you say. Uh, what's the distance between your left side and your right side? Well, it depends upon which simultaneous uh, left side, right side you're talking. And uh, <laughs> this gets into the physics or the mathematics of uh, Minkowski space, which which I won't delve into at this time. Yeah, so, it gets bizarre really quick, doesn't it? Yeah. So this is probably a, a slide that will... Uh, resonate with a lot of Christians, the, you know, the theological implications, you know, regardless of the, uh, philosophical, mathematical and empirical, uh, problems that it runs into. Uh, the first thing is an eternalist blocking over, sir, there is no time, right? Time is illusion. The implication would be that God created this entire 4d universe as a completed object. So as it was created, so shall it ever be, right? <laughs> time yeah. is illusion. Nothing yeah. ever happens. So here, here's the really terrible thing. Everything was created directly from the hand of God. The future was created directly from the hand of God. The present was, right. you know, in the past, although you really can't use those terms. So the, the, right. the, uh, the really serious error is that there are no secondary causes or agents, mm -hmm. right? In presentism, you, you know, you're going to say God created uh, the uh, heavens and the earth in the beginning. Right. And he created man as a uh, free agent, not something that's compelled by physical causation, right. Or uh, compelled directly, right. By yeah, being created in that state. So, uh, God is the direct and only cause of everything in the block universe. And it actually makes God the direct creator of sin. So let, let me ask you a question about this. Cause this is something that I hear. So I think most people, the way they talk about time, um, think about it like presentism right they they right when they're actually just going through their daily life you know they 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 think that they are truly 
like moving through time as a 3D object, right? I, I think is how most people think about it. But then, exactly. but then when you get to, for some reason, and I don't know where this comes from, and maybe it was different in sort of the Christian circles where, where you've been. In the Christian circles that I've grown up in and always been around, we sort of talk about God and his relationship to time, which I know is a topic way bigger than this, but just go with me here for a moment. Um, we talk about God and his relationship to time in a way that really sounds a lot like eternalism. And, and I don't know if you have a, a thought about that, uh, you know, your thought about God's relationship to time, but like we talk about how God is outside of time and God's in the past, the present and the future at the same time and God's everywhere and, and which obviously is omnipresence. But um, what are your thoughts on that? Do Christians, when they say things like that, are they assuming sort of an eternalist 4D space time block? when they talk about God's relationship to time in that way, or how would you, how would you cast that? Yes, I think it actually shades over into that. You said that God exists in the past, uh, present, and, and future. I would say God doesn't exist in the past because there is no past, right? And exactly. He doesn't exist in the future because there is no, at this moment, there is no uh, future me, right? Okay. So, yeah. Uh, the other thing that is the issue is when we say time, I always view it as created time. Do we say, I mean, God's, uh, the ontological Trinity is the eternal God who exists in himself. Right. Right. He doesn't exist in time. So, uh, yeah, I mean, he, he, he's self-existent. And so to say that God exists in time is in some sense to say time is part of God. Okay. Right. So right. is, is time an attribute of God? And, uh, I, I would say no, uh, that, that what we, what we experience as creatures, the creaturely time is not, you know, part of God. Uh, we, we do believe that, you know, God is imminent within the creation, which means he's here in every single instant. Right. And he's in, he's, he's imminent in every single, uh, location within the creation, but he's also transcendent. So, uh, Right, right. That's, that, but that's but in, that, in that sense, uh, not even God could time travel in a sense because in created time, there is no physical past. Correct. Now, I know all this gets into all the, uh, what, what I would say is really the true mysteries, you know, things like the incarnation. I mean, even the thought that how the ontological trinity could incarnate you know, the, the sun could become incarnate within, within the creation is, uh, is a deep mystery, but, uh, sure. things like that don't bother me because, uh, even the fact of man being, having material and immaterial, uh, parts, you know, and how does the mind, uh, interact with the brain and how does the mind interact with the physical? I mean, the mind is not the brain, you know, regardless of what modern unbelievers want to say, right. You know, the idea that right. you're, you're, you're just a material computer. And, uh, I mean, they'll get into the notion that, you know, even consciousness is an illusion, right? Because I mean, you're just a brain, right? I mean, you're, you're, you're like a, you're a meat computer is the way some people put it. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Which, which yeah. means you're compelled. In other words, and also people have pointed this out quite a bit, uh, if you're just a meat computer, then you're subject to just physical causation and even worse here, uh, it's not even, uh, a deterministic physical con carnation. 
you know, in the old days, you had your choice that if you were a clock, then you had to do whatever state you were in. The future was dictated by whatever current state you were in. You know, the same way the planets go around the sun, right? You just, you just you're forced yeah. to follow that. So in that case, there's no real you. And uh, if you ascribe to what I consider is not the correct view of quantum mechanics, then the universe is just a probabilistic. So your thoughts are, you're not having real thoughts or just whatever the, the electron decided to, uh, I can use the yeah. side of an electron, flopped in another orbital. And so you had that thought. So <laughs> you're, you're not in the driver's seat, right? The laws of physics. So, uh, right. Correct. But we know okay. theologically that men are, have free age. They're not compelled by uh, physics, right? So, uh, let's see, was there something else I wanted to say here? I'm trying to remember. Uh, yeah. So we're talking, we, I'm, I'm just pointing out that the, the, the philosophical issues concerning time and God's relationship to time are just as mysterious as all more what people might consider more mundane things like just human existence. Yeah. You know, like the mind body mm -hmm. problem. Uh, I, I think I mentioned in one of my blogs that, you know, the physicists can't even explain what happens when a, uh, an electron emits a, uh, a wave of light. I mean, what's going on, <laughs> right? Exactly. We can, yeah. we can write down equations that, ex that describe the process, but it doesn't say why that occurs or how that occurs. It's, you know, right. why is it that electrons interact with light and other particles don't interact with other particles? Some do and some don't. So. Anyway. Yeah. And so the, the existence of profound mysteries is not necessarily problematic. Um, we, we've all got profound mysteries, if you will, to explain. It's just a, a question and sort of back to our slide. It's just sort of a question of wh which profound mysteries do we need to be concerned with from a theological perspective? And, um, you know, the, the notion of God creating an unchanging past, present and future gets problematic pretty quickly. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, to make it clear, I mean, uh, the issue of prophecy and God's relationship to time. I, I'm a five point Calvinist, so I believe God decreed all things was that what whatsoever occurs, right? So, uh, mm -hmm. whatever difficulties that causes with some people, I believe that's what the scriptures say. So, I mean, he, it, it's uh, uh, God knows the future because he's decreed it, right? And it's his, it's his mind. I mean, it's the mind of God that, uh, you know, the sovereignty of God. I mean, if God is not in control of everything that are a fright. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, okay. Uh, so let's, let's go on down to some of these other, uh, really bad implications of, uh, eternalism. So for example, we've already mentioned that uh, basically, uh, God created Adam in sin, right? He actually created all yeah. of us in sin. Uh, he created God, uh, God created Christ already hanging on the, on the cross. Right. He's still there. Right. Right. I mean, yeah. if time travel is possible, you could go back in time and, and observe the crucifixion. I don't think so. Right. So is he eternally wow. suffering or is he in the tomb eternally resurrected eternally, uh, glorified eternally? So you mentioned this earlier, it, it implies that each cre creature is created as a 4d worm. And so that means yeah. every sinner still has a lost, unregenerated soul. I mean, it's attached to your 4D being, right? Your 4D. Right. Being. Isn't that strange? Yeah, that's right. so strange. So even though you're saved now and regenerated and saved, you still got a, a piece 
So which piece goes to heaven, which piece goes to hell? I don't know how that works. And so question is, are we all lost, safe, uh, 4D beings? Anyway, I got a little model here that I can put up. Let me see if I oh, yeah. get it so I can see. So here's the eternalist yeah. model. Okay. So this skewer represents time and imagine that this is you. Okay. These little paper dolls. Yeah. And, uh. This is time and imagine paper dolls in between every other paper doll, right? Obviously I can't put a, a sure, like a, just a block, paper. a solid block yeah, of yeah, paper yeah, dolls. Block. So yeah. Yeah, fill it in so that you're this, uh, this block. So that's eternalism. So here you are in the past, not saved. Here you are saved. Here you are, <laughs> here you are in heaven, right? So wow, that's, that's pretty yeah. interesting. So that's eternalism. Here's presentism. Right. So this is, this is time if I can find myself. And so here you yep. are, right. Moving through time. Yep. Right? So exactly. there's only one you it's three dimensional, right? Okay. So, uh, yeah, hopefully yeah. that, that gives you, uh, an, an understanding. So, well, yeah. And that, in that, in that model, like strangely, somebody would, 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 would be, um, created in hell, created in heaven, but there would be like a part of them that was created as, uh, uh, you know, ostensibly in heaven while there was a past that was not saved. Very strange theologically if, to take that view. Right. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and yeah, I won't go down the road of let's talk about this uh, science fantasy time travel movies about, you know, whether you go back in the past, you go back in the past and change it. Well, obviously you can't, right? Because it's whatever right. was there was there, right? So. Yeah, this is. I'm a huge Star Trek fan, so you're breaking my heart a little bit with this, Phil. But I'll uh, I'll have to I'll have to pick up the pieces somehow. Yeah. Well, I think I mentioned <laughs> that one of the ICCs that uh, somebody asked me about that. There was a TV movie called Timeless, which I enjoyed considerably, uh, and I, I said, "Yeah, it's it's entertainment, right?" And right. Uh, yeah, so just go with it, right? <laughs> It's, yeah, you would like you would like Pinocchio, right? <laughs> or so, yeah. It's there you go. Story, yeah. right? It's it's so, magic. It's uh, it's right. magic. Yep. Right. Okay. Very so cool. uh, okay. So we talked about a theological. What about a theoretical? We've already mentioned this. It's uh, mm -hmm. ASC is based on the presupposition. I want to emphasize the geometry of Minkowski space time. Uh, and so, as such, ASC actually assumes isotropical physical speed of light. How can we show this? Well, first of all, I mean, the logical defects, how can you assume isotropic, well, isotropic physical speed of light is a basic postulate, then claim the speed of light is not isotropic. The only way is equivocation. Mm. That they don't, when you, in the Minkowski space, you talk about the speed of light and ASC talks about the speed of light. All right. So. So anyway, so uh, we're going to show this later. In fact, the ASC transform assumes and depends on a one-way speed of light. So that's, that's yeah. a little, I'm going to go into a little bit of mathematics here. Uh, if you've had high school physics, one of the first things to introduce you to is that uh, the definition of speed is distance divided by time, right? Mm. Now, this is the notion we have in everyday uh, life, right? We get in our automobile, we go 60 miles an hour. That's our speed. So we know in an hour we're going to go 60 miles, right? Well, yep. clearly that's non-relativistic, but 
the still the idea is that it's a physical distance divided by a physical and uh so for the speed of light the physical distance divided by t would be c now how do we measure distance if we're assuming pythagorean uh theorem uh, uh Pythag euclidean geometry which in fact minkowski space does assume then the distance d is you take the sum of the squares and take the square root right? so that's the standard you know right triangle formula you know for the hypotenuse right of a of a uh, separation so if we go back to the formula like i just said if i'm in my car the distance i travel when i'm going at speed c in delta time delta t is this right so my speed times the delta t is the distance so if i square that i get c squared delta t squared equals delta x squared plus delta y squared plus delta z squared if i rearrange that I get C squared delta T squared minus delta X squared minus delta Y squared minus delta Z squared equals zero. And that this quantity equal to zero is exactly what is known as the Minkowski interval, which for light is zero. This is called delta S squared. So the entire edifice of special relativity is built on this formula that I have here with this little rounded arrow coming. Okay. And and this is the, what's called the Minkowski interval. And Lyle quotes that in his book, The Physics of Einstein, which is really just a exposition of the special theory of relativity with, unfortunately, as a showpiece for his ASC. I mean, he, after he's done special relativity, he goes into his ASC sections. But he points out that this delta S squared is an invariant. In other words, it doesn't matter what coordinate system you use. <laughs> If I, if I look at two events separated by delta T in one coordinate system, delta X, delta Y, and delta Z, and get, if it's on a light ray, I'm going to get zero. I'm going to get zero regardless of the coordinate system. Well, in this coordinate system, delta X is a physical distance, delta Y is a physical distance, and delta Z is a physical distance. And this delta T is the time elapsed on a on an ideal non-broken clock that somebody's artificially said, I'm going to make it stop or, you know, alter it artificially, that that implies this formula. That right. beta light is this D divided by this T. Right? And it's the same whether you're going out or going in. Okay. All right. So what is it that ASC is doing? Okay, I'm, I'm going to get into a little bit of jargon here, and I apologize for that. This is for the benefit of those that uh, can understand the math. But I'm calling this the ASC transform. And basically, and, and Lyle gives this in his book, I define a new time, a la Reichenbach, which is the Einstein synchrony convention time minus this two epsilon minus one times the distance away from the origin, say along OP, divided by the speed of light. We'll, we'll talk about this speed of light thing here in a minute. But this is in Minkowski space. And as I pointed out on the previous slide, this, this S squared quantity is an invariant. So if I, if I compute the distance from O to P, in other words, space-time interval, uh, according to Einstein, that is actually X. So the distance from O to P is the coordinate X, okay? So 
X is both a coordinate and it's a distance. And you can see in the ASC transform, it says whatever X was, I'm going to claim my new coordinate X prime is also that X. So that's what I, and so T prime gets, T gets moved down. So the line OP, according to this linear transformation, gets transformed from OP down to OQ. Okay. Yes. And, and so when I'm at a distance X, this P moves to Q with this minus two epsilon minus one X over C. So what am I going to do here? I'm going to ask, what is the distance? If, if this isn't the same now, you see, as a matter of fact, this is T prime equals constant. This is T prime equals zero. And this is T equals zero. But according to an eternalist, if T prime equals zero, these are all at the same time. Right. Right. So the way I measure distance is from the point O to the point at point Q at the same time. Well, I have to use the geometry of Minkowski space. So let's do that. When we do that, and I won't elucidate this, you get <laughs> you get you get down to this formula. And what you'll notice is that the distance of O to OQ is not X. It's X, the X squared times this quantity, epsilon, right? Mm. So S O to Q yeah. is not the same as S O to P. And in the jargon, ASC is not an isometry, which is what I said before. So if we're going to do speed is physically is distance divided by time, I can't use X prime divided by T prime or whatever it is. I have to use this new, uh, new distance. ASC is not an isometry, which means it does not preserve distances. Well, if it doesn't pre preserve distances, then uh, you, you're in trouble because X is no longer a distance, right? As I just showed, right. X, mm -hmm. X was the distance to the reflector, say here at P and, uh, therefore under the ASC transform DX divided by DT is, is not distance divided by time. Okay. I call yeah. this an abuse. I call this an abuse of coordinate and, uh, ASC is basically that it's an abuse of coordinates. It doesn't pay attention to the geometry, which has been assumed from the very beginning. Right. So if I were to like, uh, attempt at a very high level layperson summary of this, the problem is that the, the assumption, the assumptions that are being used to, to make the claims that are being made when one does the math required by that, it, it shows the op that it, that it's not true. Right. So the actual math required. To, to be done actually shows that the assumptions um, are not accurate. Right. Yeah, maybe at this point, uh, the conventionality thesis is bandied about quite a bit, right? As a matter of fact, ASC mm -hmm. lets the cat out of the bag because it's, a, it's the anisotropic synchrony. And they want to right. claim that Einstein's synchrony is also just a convention. And the example they typically use is they say it's like uh, units. You know, I can use kilometers or miles to uh, specify a distance, correct? Uh, right. Uh, so if I say the distance from me to you is, let's see, what is it going to be? About 2,000 miles, East Coast, West Coast? I've no yeah, 2, something 000, like that, yeah. 3,000? Yeah, in, in 2,000, 3,000 miles. If I tell you my distance is 3,000, I don't, I'm not telling you anything, am I? Right. No, of course. Right. Yeah. Right. If I tell you it's the equivalent distance in kilometers, it won't be 3,000, right? 
Correct. So, yeah. Uh, so whatever that number. So I told you that you wouldn't know the distance. In other words, to actually know the physical distance, we have to know how to convert from kilometers to, uh, to miles. Right. And, and, and they want to say right. that that's the, the conventionality involved in, uh, yeah, that's a common example that's used. It's actually not the best example, although it does right. give you a sense of what's going on here. Perhaps a better example is say I'm in a jet airplane and in New York city, and I'm going to fly to Los Angeles and I have a jet that can actually, uh, what's called, uh, pace the sun, right? Follow the sun. So say I, I take off at noon. So I look out my window and I see the uh, sun's directly overhead. Right. And I take off and I keep looking out my window. The sun's always directly overhead, directly overhead, directly. And I land in Los Angeles and, and the sun's directly overhead. So I took off at noon and I landed it. Right. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> is, is my speed <laughs> infinite or was it that I traveled zero distance? Which, which, which is it? So, uh, right. Right. And it's an example yeah. of changing time coordinates, right. By a synchrony convention or whatever. Right. So. I'm basically saying I'm going to change my time based upon my distance from the origin. So that gets back to this equation up here in the upper left-hand corner. I define a new, I set my clocks to a new time based upon the distance I've traveled divided by the speed of light. Right? Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, all right. So yeah, let's go to the next slide. This, I basically have already elucidated, discussed it. The important facts concerning the ASC coordinate transform. The first thing is coordinates have no inherent physical meaning, right? Mm -hmm. uh, they don't, they don't necessarily measure distance, right? So, uh, uh what's a good example in, uh, geometry, when, when we were doing analytic geometry in high school, we realized that we could, uh, use Cartesian coordinates, which I did in the Minkowski space example, say in the plane X, Y, right? So we have two axes at right angles to each other, X measured horizontally, Y measured vertically, or I can go to what's known as polar coordinates. So I measure the distance or of a point to the origin and its angle from the X axis, right? So those are two different representations of a point in the plane and they're both coordinates. I could use even more exotic coordinates. I mean, there's, I think there's confocal, elliptical and all sorts of coordinates, uh, for the earth, there's Mercator coordinates. Okay. And polar stereographic coordinates. And, uh, yeah, so those are projections on a map. If you go to your Rand McNally Atlas, everybody knows that the shapes of continents are distorted, right? So you'd be mistaken to put your ruler down on the, uh, the map and do a Pythagorean oh. theorem. Right. Yeah. To right. try to get the distance. Yeah. Uh -huh. Right. But I could locate a point on the map by telling you it's X, Y coordinates in this pseudo Euclidean uh, coordinate system. Right. As a matter of fact, that's what the maps do. Right. If you go look up, uh, I want to find London, right. They'll say, go to map on page 47 and it's in the grid a five. Mm. Right. And that that's kind of a form of gross coordinates, right? I mean, nobody would use a five is to be, to be six or whatever is, is to, to compute this. I don't know. I'm probably be laboring that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, but the, but the point's well taken. Yeah. Okay. So that leads us to the second point here. Coordinates must be interpreted in terms of an underlying geometric model. 
if you don't, it leads to an abuse of coordinates. Okay. Right. And the geometric model for ASC is Minkowski space. And so interestingly enough, this is, this is another logical problem with ASC. The ASC coordinate transform is based on the geometry of Minkowski space. And why is that? This arrow here, the value C used in the ASC coordinate transform is the one-way speed of light. In other words, how do I know to reset my clock that when I move the distance X, if I don't know what C is to divide it? Right. Oh, yeah. You following? To me, this is sort of like, this is, the light bulb should go on. This is the coup de grace. Yeah. Right. So you got a, yeah. you got some mathematically, you're playing around with coordinates. You act like the speed of light is not isotropic, but yet you put this value in there. Okay. <laughs> So it's yeah, the one with speed of light, which is intrinsic <laughs> in Kowski space. So what's the implication? I basically said this in the previous slide. The geometric meaning of T prime and X prime in this transform yep. is not the same, not the same. as T as, as this T and this X. They're not exactly. the same. They're yeah. just coordinates. Yeah. They're just labels. Okay. All yeah. right. So let's, let's do this. I think uh, we talked about this previously. So this is the artificiality of the ASC transform. So I've, I've shown the transform again. I've already mentioned that you depends upon distance and the one-way speed of light. So let's have a thought experiment here. So you and I synchronize our clocks at a common location. So I guess I, I got on a jet airplane and came back to your home. <laughs> okay. Yep. All right. So we're in the yep. same studio. All right. So we look at our time X's, right? And, uh, you know, as they do in the movies, military movies, let's synchronize our watches. Okay. So we're at the same location. Okay. Then I move away from you very slowly. And I guess I can actually get on a gen airplane. So it's yeah. time, time dilation, according to special relativity is, is minuscule. So after I move a distance X, oh, and this is a, quite a distance one light, right? So mm -hmm. I'm moving, yeah. I guess I can't use a jet airplane. Sorry for my uh, example. I get in a rocket ship moving relatively slowly. Okay, yeah. But this is a thought experiment, all right? We don't have to, we don't have to implement this. Okay, so I reset my clock according to the ASC transform by artificially setting it forward by a time amount T equal to X divided by C. Well, I said I went the distance of one light, right? Right. Uh -huh. So that's one hour. So I set my time forward one hour. One hour. So that is the, okay, so let's say it was noon when I, when I left you. And so I travel out and I set mine to 1 p.m. All right. So that is the time it takes to travel the distance X at the speed of light size tropic. In other words, my clock is set fast by one hour. So my clock reads 1 p.m. Say when your clock reads 12. Okay. I'm right. now going to send you a message that says, Hey, Steve, I sent this message at 1 p.m. Well, if Steve's, Steve, Steve, if your clock reads 1 p.m. when you receive it, You've computed the ASC speed of light is uh, one light hour distance divided by zero. Right. Because I said I emitted at 1 p.m. Yeah. It was actually noon for you. It took right. one hour to get to you, and your clock says 1 p.m. So 1 p.m. to 1 p.m. is zero. So this is very similar to the jet airliner. Yeah. But if the times are identical, it applies the real speed of light is C that I used to artificially set my clock. Right. right? <laughs> I, I used, I yeah. used the one way speed yeah. of light to set my clock and lo and behold, you say I sent it at 1 PM and you received it at 1 PM. 
Okay, right. here's another instance. My resetting yeah. of a clock has nothing to do with the physics of light propagation. Right, just because right? you changed the value doesn't mean that's actually what happened. Yeah, I, 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 I'm quite capable of resetting my clock anytime I want. As sure. a matter of yeah. fact, uh, uh, should I put the humor in first here? Or? <laughs> sure. So I can set my clock anytime I want. Why if I have a broken watch? Well, actually, this does correspond to the jet airplane where it's always noon, right? So the Mad Hatter, he's uh, conversing at the, the Mad Tea Party. He says, well, I'd hardly finished the first verse when the queen bawled out. He's murdering the time off with his head. And ever since that, time won't do a thing I ask. It's always <laughs> the clock now. <laughs> oh, oh it's, it's hilarious, though. Yeah, yeah. right? It, okay. But just to see it, yeah, it's just to see how how it falls apart when you're actually just looking at the geometry. It's really fascinating. Right. right. Now, here I'm asking the question, which did Reichenbach mean? On the previous slide, I showed you where he moved T prime up along T1 and T2, right? And somehow yeah. saying that R is the distance, although the surface or the time is simultaneous was that T prime is simultaneous to R, right? Not this, I should have labeled this point. Right. Or did he yes. mean, or did he mean that the physical speed of light actually changed? In other words, it was reflected at T prime at a distance, uh, or yeah, yeah, T prime at a distance R, where R is the Euclidean distance to the reflector. And as you can see, this implies that the outgoing light ray is moving slower than the incoming light ray. Why is that? Because you can see right. they both traveled the same distance and it took the outgoing ray longer to traverse the distance R, right? The incoming light ray took only T2 minus T prime to traverse the same distance R. Right. So this, if R is the actual physical distance and T2 minus T prime is the actual time, then this would be a faster speed of light. So the question is, I have at the bottom is which are the simultaneous events, the T prime or on the left or the T prime or on the right. So let's do a little Reichenbach versus Minkowski space. This is kind of like a redo of one of my other, uh, slides. So perhaps Reichenbach intended that T prime be the time of reflection according to the space time diagram at the left. That's my question. So is this consistent with Minkowski geometry? Is Reichenbach and Lyle both accept? And the answer is no. So I'm not going to go through this again. It's, it's using that exact same Minkowski yeah. interval. And we get down to this formula. And it, this is supposed P, T, Q, R is supposed to be a null, what's called a null path, which means its interval is zero. And Lyle agrees that this space-time interval is an invariant. So this should be zero. Okay, so, but it's not. It's only zero when epsilon is one half. And when epsilon is one half, we get the incoming and outgoing speed of light are equal. So the same reasoning applies to this PR interval. It's, 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 it's also not null. All right, so yeah. it can't be this, which means it has to be the other eternalist notion, right? Where they'll go back to it. This one where T prime and R are the ones that are simultaneous, but then that means the distance is not R. Right. The, the interval <laughs> from E prime to R is not R. 
but yeah, and they took people's feet alive. They keep using this R. So, which is it? They're on the horns of a dilemma. This one doesn't work. And this one is basically eternalist and the abuse of coordinates because they right. use R. They use R as the distance when it is. Yeah. Okay. Fascinating. Well, so, I mean, I, for the, for the, yeah, for the ultra math nerds, I'm sure they got that. I mean, my eyes are glazed over on that a little bit as I'm sure some others are, but, but the important point again is to, is to remember that the math that you're showing show, well, it just shows that they're on the horns of, of a dilemma, right? You said it. I mean, that, that's the, the, the kind of the fundamental problem here that I think is going to be necessary for most people to grasp. Correct. Yeah. It's, it's uh, the takeaway, the bumper sticker ideas it's abuse it's an abuse of coordinates so yeah. when they talk so it's equivocation so they get into the equivocation by abusing the coordinates so yeah exactly they call it speed of light it's not speed of light and all right so yep yeah so that brings good. us to some of the experimental refutations of asc as i mentioned earlier uh the uh asc or the reichenbach conventionality was formulated a long time ago when there weren't even atomic clocks. Okay. Yeah. High, high, highly accurate clocks. So it was like the 1920s. I said mid twenties. So it's 1920s. We've already mentioned in the introduction to the uh, Reichenbach that all the old experiments was they were one way. They claimed the one way speed of life required two clocks, thus synchronization, synchronization. And you would only get a average. Okay. So I claim yeah. that that's, uh, I should mention this, mixing all these issues together in one big ball of string, meaning it needs to be disentangled. It's the genesis of this synchronization, this operationalism, this simultaneity and ontology, presentism, eternalism, one-way speed of life conduct. <laughs> you know, they just yeah. throw all that stuff out on the floor and they say, okay, let's, you can't sort this out. Well, I, I think so. The first one I want to mention here is a modern example is the Caltech femtosecond camera. It employs only one clock. So synchronization, simultaneous issues are avoided in my bottom line. Reifenbach epsilon model needs to be buried. So if you want to put up the, the video, it, it's an experiment where they have one clock. And they actually observe a, a wave packet of light moving in one direction from left to right. I had a haircut as well. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here we go. Right, okay, so what we're seeing here is the... Whoa. <laughs> the balls that's been comped in, basically. Yeah, so this camera only detects the light itself, which is a, like a bluish laser light, which is why you don't really see anything else other than the light looking like that. And then we comp in the picture of the ball. In the room with my actual eye, it looked like it was constantly lit up. But here, we're able to follow the light moving through the bottle. It may not look like it, but this is actually real. It's refracting the photons. That's why you can see it. But when it's just going through the air, there's nothing to actually reflect the light. So yeah, it's only it. showing up in the ball. It is interesting. It, it almost looks like a sort of an 80s film effect. It does, doesn't it? It looks like, like some sort of ghost flying into the room. But actually, that is light. No, wait, look at this scale. So every frame seems to be 10 picoseconds. And we're just sort of casually watching this light go left to right through the bottle. But in reality, the light is moving a million times faster than a bullet. What a mental subject. 
So here I have a schematic of the Caltech Fentos second camera, and I've illustrated it via what are known as beam splitters. So rather than showing the, you know, the video, I have a pulse uh, traveling from left to right at a speed C sub transverse. So transverse means not coming towards the camera. So the light ray comes in and hits a beam splitter at point A at time T sub A, which uh, I don't know. It travels a distance D. I hope everybody believes I can measure the, the length of that bottle or the distance between the beam splitters. It <laughs> arrives at this beam splitter right. B at time T sub B. And when it's split, it's going to travel towards the uh, camera and it's going to travel a distance R in both cases. I have one clock at the origin. So it travels at a different speed. So I'm making it anisotropic, right? So CT is not necessarily the same as C sub R. Right? Mm -hmm. uh, but the time that this light pulse will arrive at the camera so it can be recorded on the, on the camera is going to be T1, which is the time it was at A, plus the time to travel from the beam splitter to the clock, which is the distance R divided by C sub R, again, which is not the same as C sub D. And then likewise for the light pulse coming from beam splitter B to the, to the camera, the clock, its time of receipt is going to be T2, which is time that the pulse was at beam splitter B plus the time to get from B to uh, O. And that's this distance traveled divided by C sub R. Okay. And yes. uh, so T1 and T2 obser are observable on the clock. So it's actually the time in the video, right, which you saw the time. Yeah. So how do I get the, uh, the speed? Well, the speed is going to be the distance it traveled along the bottle, T2, right, which was... Uh, uh -huh. T, T, well, T2, I'm going to take T2 minus T1, all right? And what do I get? I get D in using these two formulas. You, you see that the R divided by CR cancels, right? Yep. R, R sub CR minus R sub CR. So I get, uh, yep. actually, I got, did I do this backwards? It's supposed to be uh, TA minus TB. So I did that back. T2 is supposed to be TB. Right. So I need to correct that. So anyway, it's T, it's TB divided by TA, which is CT. So I've measured CT. Right. Which exactly. is a one-way speed of light. So, one-way speed of light. Uh, right. Which they claim is impossible. Right. And, uh, I'll say, well, yeah, yeah it's, wow. it's observable, but I could, I could have rotated this experiment on the lab table and, uh, and, uh, Pasadena rotated at 90 degrees, I still would have got the same number, right? So that exactly. means from left, right, and forward, backwards, right? And then I could have done it up, down too, right? So speed of light is, I can measure this. So when I measured the speed of light in one direction, I basically measured it in all directions. But that was one of the thesis of, uh, of, uh, of the Reichenbach, Lyle, is it's impossible to measure any one way speed. Right. Right. Exactly. So, yeah. And that's, yeah. And this, but the, you know, it's important because this whole experiment, you know, it, there's one clock. 
right? right. The, yeah, I, so it's, it's no, yeah, so there goes the synchrony uh, convention. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yes. there's it, other ways that they could try to get out of it, but C sub R, these two are equal according to the ASC transfer. Somebody could say, well, let me, let me use a different convention. Let me make yeah. it, uh, with an epsilon that depends upon angle or angle or whatever. So they could really try to confound this, but there's no physical basis for that. One person wanted to claim that C sub R was different than, than, than over here. And my comment was, well, what is there a black hole in between the, uh, right. between the, right. or, or some other, or, uh, you can actually go through the analysis and, and ask how much variation would there have to be between the speed here and the speed here to invalidate this result. And yeah. uh, it's not very, it's not very much. I mean, yeah, yeah I mean, no, you, you take a, quite a bit. So, but so an unreasonable I'm, amount of variation. So I'm going to ask a question that could get, get, get us into a, a ball of wax. And, and if it's, if the ball of wax is too big, um, I think it's something we're going to discuss in a, in a future video together yeah. anyway. So, but the question that I would have about this is, is could they, could they essentially look at this experiment and say, well, you know, it's one thing to talk about taking a picture of the one way speed of light in a lab at a, at, at a camera with a sh relatively short distance, but we're talking about the creation of the universe and stars that are millions of, you know, many, many light years um, apart. And, and things change when you start talking about that scale. What would you say to that? Well, the uh, Reichenbach-Lyle transform, I don't know whether I want to go back to the previous slide, it implies that it's uh, anisotropic all the way to the Earth. So it's anisotropic, okay. within, it's anisotropic within the laboratory also. Okay, understood. So it's, so it's really the same thing at either scale. Yeah, it's, it's a global anisotropy. It's not a local or not a, not a remote anisotropy uh, in, a, in a local. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. It's, it's uniform. So the, yeah, so I the can go back to slide. The, uh, oh, if you no, want to. You I'm, I'm going to di digress. Okay. All right. Confuse everybody there. Okay. <laughs> so uh, the next example that I had on the previous slide is there are real world examples that rely upon a one-way speed of light because they're one-way phenomena. And, uh, the engineering wouldn't work if you didn't know the one way speed of light. And, uh, the prime example of that is the Doppler ship. And, uh, I discovered this example on the, uh, on the internet that ham radio, radio operators can actually, uh, communicate and talk to the, ast the, uh, astronauts on the ISS. I believe they, they, they've allocated times when the astronauts are not doing their, their chores or their work experiments. They, they blocked out some times for, you know, chatting with the uh, people on the earth. Now, the way the ISS has uh, configured this is the ISS is a server and they've specified a frequency band that they're going to transmit and receive on. And why is that? Because you have a diversity of clients, all the ham operators on the earth, right? That are going to want to, uh, just uh, communicate with the ast astronauts and, and they are the ones that have to adjust their frequencies, not the ISS, right? So the ISS right. is like a uh, server and those on the ground have to adjust their frequencies to compensate for the Doppler shift. 
Now, the Doppler shift is a, a phenomenon that when a wave uh, is a uh, source is uh, moving relative to a receiver, that if the uh, transmitter is approaching the receiver, the frequency is going to increase, which is known as a blue shift. So it would correspond to tuning to a higher frequency on your uh, radio dot if it's yep. approaching. And if it's receding, then uh, it's red shifted. It goes to a lower shift, lower frequency. So uh, as a result of the Doppler or blue shift increase in frequency due to the ISS motion, the ground station must lower the transmit frequency so that the received signal at the ISS will be within the ISS frequency band. Okay, so uh, yeah, right. So the, the if the frequency, let's see, do I have a diagram for that? No, I, I didn't include the diagram, uh, which is a little, okay. And likewise, the ground station must increase the receive frequency so they can hear the ISS. All right. So if the uh, I don't know if I want to give some numerical examples. The the point is <laughs> that um, the 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 ham operator can't uh, set his frequency at the allocated uh, frequency of the ISS when the ISS is approaching because it's going to be shifted out of that frequency oh, band. So he's right. going to have to increase his, he's going to have to tune up on the radio dial. And then likewise, when he's sending, his frequency will be increased and it'll be moved outside of the ISS's frequency band and you'll have loss of signal. So he's going to have to, tuned down on the radio dial so that when it's increased at the ISS, it'll be within the ISS's receive window. And I've got the formula there to show how it refutes ASC because the ham radio operator has to compute this delta frequency uh, based upon the ISS's speed, the ISS's frequency band, the angle between the speed, the speed and the one-way speed of light C, that's the important quantity. Yeah. Is, is the one-way speed of light. So if the ham radio operator doesn't know what C is, if C can be made anything, in fact, if C can be made infinite, then he doesn't have to change his frequency. Wow. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I, I would have never thought about radio, you know, like, like just that, tra that actual transmission. I would have never thought of that as a one-way speed of light effect. Before now, right? Sure yes, Tele telecommunication is one way, right? It, it, when uh, when we're communicating here over, uh, you know, a radio or whatever the the technology is being used, uh, we I don't have to wait for me to talk to you and get a signal back, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. You, you just receive it. It's one. It's one way, and vice versa. I, at the bot for those interested, I provided a link at the bottom of the slide, which actually shows the ham radio operators, uh, how to set their frequency. So it's basically like an app that oh, can wow. compute it for them. And what a, what a ham radio operator would do is, you know, like the push buttons in your car radio, right? Where you can preset frequencies, you know, tune in an FM station and put it on button one and another station on button two. The ham radio operator, when he knows that he wants to communicate with the ISS on one of his transits, he can look up the parameters and compute the frequency shifts and preset a send and receive push button. You know, so when he's ready to talk, he pushes the uh, send 
and, and talks to the ISS and then does the over and out, pushes the receive, you know, so he doesn't have to. That is so fascinating. Out. Yeah. Now, now there, I'm, I'm sure the answer is yes, at least to some degree, but, but for those in the audience who are perhaps a little bit more lay, um, than professional, um, is there sort of a, a, a parallel or some sort of analogy here to the way that uh, we usually think about the Doppler effect, you know, sound like a train coming towards you? And going no, it's, it's how, sim, how sim, they're sim, they're, they're identical. They're, uh, yeah, this, this is the non-relativistic formula. And so it would be a similar formula with C being the speed of sound. Fascinating. Right. Okay. Very good. So, okay. yeah. Right. Yeah, so you can compute the change in a, a train whistle or a siren whistle by using that formula. So it'd be the speed, let's take a train. So the, the change in frequency for sound would be the speed of the train, the cosine of the angle, the, uh, this, the frequency of the whistle divided by the speed of sound. Huh. Fascinating. Which is also gotcha. one way, right? So. Right. Yes. Very fascinating. So okay. literally... Just some real world stuff that you experience sort of every day that that just totally refutes this idea right. of a uh, of a yeah of a right. choice in, okay. in, the, so, in the speed of light. Exactly. Now this is a astronomical, I guess, a, a space application. Many people will not be ham radio radio operators communicating with the ISS. Let's take something closer to home. How about high frequency mobile cell phone communication? Okay, so it actually occurs on high-speed trains also. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the way uh, cell phones work is there's ground stations, right, that communicate with each other. So you, when you're close to a ground station, right, you're basically doing a one-way transmission to the ground station, and the ground station uh, goes via either satellites or other ground stations to the person you're, you're talking to. And... The effect yeah, will be more pronounced in 5G and 6G phones, which have higher frequency range. Actually, uh, frequency range two is up into the uh, high giga gigahertz ranges. And uh, details on this is, is an online article. So communication engineers are al already aware of this, and your cell phones have to correct for dot. If they don't, you'll lose your <laughs> telephone connection, all right? Wow, that's so, so fascinating. So here's here's an article at Ericsson, ensuring fast and reliable 5G service delivery on high-speed train. So that's the key word, reliable service, right? Fast and reliable. And here's a quote from that article. The main challenges to high-speed train operation in frequency range one are securing performance with increased Doppler shift. So they're acknowledging it, right? Particularly for mid-band time division duplex, and then delivering good and consistent coverage and ensuring seamless handover between base stations along the track. Right. So that's what they're doing. In, I believe in Europe is they, they they build a base station powers along the tracks for the high speed trains. Huh. Right. Wow. And of course you have to change from one base station to another. Right. So, uh, you're receding right. from one. So you got to get a red shift. You're approaching the other one. You're going to get a blue yeah. shift and you, you got to do a handover between those two wow. base stations. Okay. That's so cool. Uh, this ought to be a convincer. And like I say, it's even on 5G, they're having, uh, problems with the FR1, but it's going to be higher with FR2. I actually came across in 
an article that with the 6G and beyond, uh, it's going to be uh, an effect for pedestrian speed, which is amazing. Wow. Good. You're going to have to correct Gracious. for Doppler shift just based upon uh, pedestrian speeds. Well, just walking. Yeah. Wow. Walking. Amazing. And, so. and again, the bottom line point is this is all, these are all one way effects. Right. The, the engineers have to know what C is, right? Exactly. If, if, they, don't, if they don't know what C is, well, then uh, how does this work? They don't get to just choose what C is. <laughs> right, exactly. So that's not a, so that's not a uh, one, these are not one-way speed of light experiments where you're in a laboratory measuring it, but you're using uh, empirical evidence from other experiments and uh, using that in your formula, right? I mean, they don't and, sit here. I, I doubt these engineers are using a uh, Lyle Reichenbach Epsilon model in all their software, right? Exactly. Well, well yeah. right. And, yeah. and, and yeah. they're not and even. Why would... Well, they're not even thinking about, you know, clock synchronization, right? In that sense, they're, you know. Yeah. Right. right. Exactly. Okay. So, <laughs> let's see. Oh, I wanted to go back to this slide. Let's summarize all of them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, so so we've gone over the femtosecond, we've gone over the ISS, we've gone over 5G, 6G mobile phones. There are other empirical refutations. Uh, I've worked on phase array radars. Phase array radars are radars that do not mechanically steer the direction of the beam. They do it electronically. In other words, they delay the excitation of uh, transmitters, and that steers the beam. And that, that uh, delay time has to be using the one-way speed of light. Same thing goes for phase, to, uh, phase radio telescope arrays. Uh, I'm not going to go through details. LIGO uh, is also a passive receiver. And of course, they use the one-way speed of light to determine the direction to the gravitational wave source. Another example is the New Horizons space probe, in its, you know, when, which uh, observed Pluto recently in the downlink okay. uplink commands. Uh, you know, the ground station has to send commands to the uh, New Horizons space probe, and uh, they use universal uh, time coordinates, UTC. Yeah. And the uh, New Horizons had a uh, high stability oscillator clock on it, which was synchronized with UTC when it was launched. And you can do the computation, the time dilation for the, what was it, 10 years to get there, if I remember correctly. Time dilation is less than a second. Okay. And the stable oscillators uh, were stable for within four seconds for a 10-year flight. So the point I'm wow. making is the, the uh, New Horizon uses its local oscillators to measure mission elapsed time. And of course, the mission elapsed time is time from its stored UTC, but that's accurate within four seconds. Okay. Right. <laughs> and how long does it take for a uh, uh, light to travel from Pluto to there? Four and a half hours. So four seconds error in four and a half hours is minuscule. So this is another effective uh, one-way speed of light. One-way speed of light. Yes. Yeah. Anyway. Wow, so, that's wild. Okay. This is an experiment I propose that could be done 
in a lab bench if somebody would procure the uh, all the equipment. So basically what you do is you put a transmitter on a pendulum and you uh, know simple harmonic motion so you can uh, observe and record light being transmitted from this transmitter on a pendulum, this periodic huh. motion. You have a 25 gigahertz receiver. So these are basically uh, uh, radar guns in transmit and receive only mode, okay? So it's a one-way, okay. right? It's not a two-way. So this one's only transmitting, this one's receiving. And you need a 2.4 gigahertz digitizer, and that'll give you a recorded time series. And then it turns out that the time of a blue shift is shorter than the time of red shift. And it depends upon the max distance or that the pendulum swings away from the uh, receiver. And if you take the difference of these, right? So you can detect when it's red shifted because yeah. you know the frequency and you can detect when it's blue shifted. So you get this long time strip here and subtract these two. And then the time difference is the is maximum distance divided by the speed of light. So you can measure the speed of light. Right. Yeah. So, Man. Well, ho hopefully somebody takes that one up. It won't be me, but hopefully somebody does. Right. Yeah. I've been quite <laughs> around about trying to uh, acquire the equipment uh, and I haven't been successful yet. And you can buy these transmitters for relatively uh, inexpensive amounts. You'll need a relatively high lab room to get a six meter pendulum to get this right, uh, right. 3.3 meter uh, swing or 6.6 6. 6 meters for R. But anyway, here's an analysis. Uh, for that yeah. time difference, you get a 44 nanosecond uh, difference. And for 2.4 gigahertz digitizer, you would see a difference of 106 time samples, what, which is a considerable amount. So, you know, it's easily detectable. So anyway, that concludes uh, my analysis yeah. of ASC. Yeah, Any that's amazing. Questions? I mean, man, I... Um... Um, no, I'm just, I'm thrilled to see somebody taking this up. I mean, I, I think this is, um, by far, and I might be a little biased, but I mean, by far, I think this is the most detailed, uh, analysis, especially by video, um, but probably at all that I've seen of the, of the issue. And, um, I, I think we've got some stuff here for the math people. I think we've got some stuff here for the lay people to kind of show the, uh, the problems with it. And yeah, no, it's, it's been very, very, it's been very good. The, the thing that's interesting about this is, um, and this is why we're doing sort of a multi-part series. I mean, we have, we still have much to talk about uh, concerns uh, on the large scale of general versus special relativity. Um, you have actually a, a model that you have proposed, right? So you're not just critiquing other models. You have your own sort of proposed model um, that we're going to eventually go through. And um, next time, what we sort of plan to do, and if you have a comment about this, feel free, but uh, otherwise I'll just kind of set it up. The next time we get together, we plan on taking a look at the um, creation time coordinates or CTC solution that has been proposed. And um, we had uh, Tico Tenev on the channel here. It's been a few months back talking about this solution. And um, I liked it. And the reason why I liked it initially was because I thought, well, so I had kind of had a feeling that the ASC was a bit arbitrary in nature. Again, choosing the special, you know, just just kind of, you know, deciding basically on on what it is. And now I understand a little bit more of the math behind that, uh, thanks to you. 
Um, but I really thought initially that the CTC would be something that gave a little more teeth to the AT, uh, to the ASC, to, to Lyle's um, model. And that was um, sort of my assumption there. And uh, you have some thoughts about that. So that's what we're going to have you back on for uh, next time. And I'm certainly looking forward to that. Okay. I'll be glad to uh, go through that, uh, that model and uh, point out some things that have, that commend it a bit, but then there are a lot of shortcomings. So, uh, and yeah, I believe yeah. that the model uh, uh, doesn't take a firm uh, presentist view of, uh, of relativity. And of course, right, it's, that, it, it's an empty universe, so you know it it has that shortcoming. Sure, and and there's um yeah, especially the eternalist and presentist. We spent quite a bit of time on that in this interview, so that should be that should be significant. So um, look forward to that. That should be coming um, your way uh, shortly, um, and we're excited. So thank you again, uh, Phil, for coming on with us, and uh, it's been good. Really appreciate it. Okay, we thank you, Steve, and I hope uh, this is useful information and. Uh, a lot of your viewers will see the, the uh, problems with ASC. I'm sure they will. I'm sure they will. Thank you.